Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this episode, Pastor Casey finishes up the Exodus series by teaching on sexual sin from the Seventh Commandment. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. Go ahead and open up your Bibles. Uh, you can. You guys got the little ribbons in your Bible? Does everybody have a real Bible? Okay. The three of you that probably have a real Bible, get the ribbons, okay? And I want you to go ahead and earmark Ephesians chapter 5. I want you to earmark um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, today, we're going to be finishing up our series in Exodus by going back to the seventh commandment, which we did not hit before. The seventh commandment being... Do not commit adultery. And so when we were on uh, the Ten Commandments series, we spent actually four weeks um, in the Ten Commandments. It was in my head supposed to be like a two-week thing, and it ended up being four weeks. And now this is the fifth week. Um, we, we got up to um, do not commit adultery, and kind of like last minute, I was like, dang, you know what? This is really worthy of an entire sermon, uh, so let's just, let's just come back to it. And that's what we're doing today. And so um, how many of you guys in the room are not married? Okay, the sermon is still going to apply to you, just so you know. So don't be thinking, well, I'm not married, so this doesn't really apply to me. This is going to hurt everyone in this room, okay? This is not going to be the most enjoyable sermon. Just prep yourself. We're talking sexual sin. So here we go. Um, let me give you, actually, let me pray, because this is, this is kind of hard. Let me just pray, and then um, we'll get into the message. Glory to God. Lord, I love you, and... Um, I'm asking, God, that you would help me communicate your heart adequately and well. God, as we're talking um, about sexual sin, it can be so easy for the enemy to produce guilt, shame, and condemnation. And I'm asking, God, that you would guard us all against that. Lord, I'm asking for fresh conviction in areas where we need fresh conviction. But I'm asking God also that you would give us encouragement and joy and strengthen the places that may be weak in our lives. God, and ultimately, may we find you in the word. May we know you through the word. And may the word search our hearts and know us. So we love you. Help me tonight. In the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, let me give you this just quick disclaimer. I was very tempted to make this entire sermon um, about pornography, okay? I just was. It was a really easy way to go, and you guys aren't married, and I was like, hey, that may be super applicable to you. However, um, I did not make this sermon about pornography, okay? I didn't. There's some principles that we're going to talk about that's going to be woven throughout um, that will help you if you are struggling with pornography. However, um, I wanted to be loyal to the text because the text is about committing adultery. And so uh, I just honestly wanted to be as loyal to the text as possible. And so if you're afraid that um, all I'm going to do is talk about um, how bad you are because of your porn addiction, I'm not going to do that. Okay, I am going to try to give you principles that can help you in your sexual sin and your struggles as a whole. Whether that's pornography, whether that's compromise, maybe in relationships, whatever it is. But ultimately, this sermon is on the topic of adultery, not pornography. Okay? So everybody in the room, you can unclench just a little bit. Here we go. Do you remember the setting of the Ten Commandments? The nation of Israel, they were just saved, delivered, and set free from the nation of Egypt. God has brought them up to Mount Sinai, where he's no longer going to just talk to Moses. He's no longer just going to show up to Moses. Instead, he's going to show up to the entire nation, and he's going to declare to them his law and his promise. And he, we, we talked about this, that we don't want to look at this as a judge just simply giving a verdict or commands, but actually as a father who's giving family values because ultimately that's what's happening right here. God is giving the law, and when, the, when Israel looks at the law, they're not just supposed to see what they should and shouldn't do. What they should see, what you and I should see, is the very value system in the heart of God. And so every command, every law, actually speaks of the character and nature of God. And so Israel is standing at Mount Sinai. God is showing up in power and in glory, and he gives 
the Decalogue, the first Ten Commandments, the very foundation for the rest of the law to come forward. And he's really kind. He doesn't just give the Ten Commandments and calls it a day. He actually gives the details behind the Ten Commandments, including how it's supposed to look day to day and how they're supposed to live out this value system. We come to the Seventh Commandment. You shall not commit adultery. It's an interesting command. It's one of the few um, that don't really have any other words attached to it. That's it. It's the whole command. It's not like um, you shall honor your mother and father so that your days will be long in the land. It's not like you shall keep the Sabbath, um, but you shall work six days. It's, it's not like you shall have no other gods before me, and then it continues what that looks like. It's very short. It's very simple. You shall not commit adultery. It's important, but it's simple. And I think sometimes because it's so clear, it's so concise, and it is so simple, we actually don't give it um, a whole lot of thought and a whole lot of study. So here's what we're going to do. Before um, we get into the actual subject of adultery, I need to remind you of a truth that we've spoken about in the series, and I promise it's going to tie in perfectly to this command. Here's the truth. There's a difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Okay? The letter of the law means the technicality of the law. The spirit of the law is the intention or the purpose behind the law. You and I, we are not bound by the letter of the law. We don't look at things from a technicality standpoint. We're bound by something far stronger and far superior. We're bound by the very spirit of the law or the spirit behind the law, which is the very Holy Spirit who penned the law. And so you and I are not going to answer to the letter of the law. We answer to the spirit of the law, the very Holy Spirit himself. It's a very important um, understanding. It's a very important concept for you and I to remember as we look at this, because here's the deal. It's supposed to have been like that from the very beginning. The, 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 the Pharisees should have not only paid attention to the letter of the law and the technicality, they should have also been looking at the spirit behind the law and the purpose and the intention. But the problem was the Pharisees, like many of us today, looked to the letter of the law and had forsaken the very spirit behind the law. And as such, they were prideful. And what you, what you see in the Gospels is that they actually used the law and the technicality of the law to measure their own righteousness. And so what you find is that they became lawyers and not sons and daughters. They looked at the law as lawyers and not sons and daughters. And so they would look to the law and to justify themselves, whereas a son and a daughter looks to the law to sanctify themselves. It's a very different way of looking at it. And so when the Pharisees read this term, you shall not commit adultery, they look at the letter of the law and they go, okay, here's exactly what this means. And, and because I didn't do this technically, I'm holy and righteous. They're lawyers. We're not lawyers here. And it's really important as Christians, we don't look at the law like Pharisees look at the law as lawyers, but we look at the law as it was intended, as sons and daughters. And so we're not going, okay, what does it technically say so I can skirt around it technically? What we actually do is we go, okay, what was the very heartbeat behind this law? And we don't look at that as, an, as a method to justify ourselves. Instead, we look at it as a method to sanctify ourselves, where the Pharisees would look at it and go, let me look at this law so that I can see how righteous I am. We go to the text and we go, let me look at this to see where I fall short. We're sons and daughters. We're aiming, we're aiming for God's value system. That's what we're striving for. And it's a really good, um, it's a really good uh, principle to keep in mind as you read the text. How often do you read the Bible? How often do you read the New Testament in particular? And you see all the things that it says that you shouldn't do. And you go, yeah, I feel pretty good about myself. How often do you look at it and you go, yeah, I, I, I didn't do this, I didn't do this, I didn't do this, I didn't do this, I'm good. You're probably looking at it like you're a lawyer. What you really should be doing is going, okay, what is God's intention and purpose here? What's he actually getting at? And Lord, show me the areas that I am falling short. And here's why. Because though most of us in this room have probably not um, committed the, the technical breaking of the letter of the law, all of us, to some degree, have probably 
maybe not all of us, but most of us, have probably violated the spirit of the law. Though you may be fined by the letter, you can still violate the very intention behind it. And so as we come to the text, whether it's this or whether it's anything else in the Bible, we have to ask the question, Holy Spirit, what is your intention behind this? And, and even though I may not be violating it on the outside in a technical sense, Lord, am I actually violating it on the inside? Because you and I, the law is now written on our hearts according to the new covenant. We have a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. And we are compelled by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the very Spirit who penned the words of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Does that make sense? Okay, so though none of you guys probably have committed adultery, specifically because you're not married, you may have violated the very spirit of the law. And so let's come to this, going, God, I want to see the areas that I've fallen short. I want to see the areas that I've fallen short because ultimately, God, I want to look like you. The highest form of worship is imitation. Romans chapter 1 says that we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. This is our acceptable form of worship. And so when we come to the text, though it may be painful, though it may convict us, though it may hurt, we need to be really honest with ourselves and we need to make sure that we are not coming to the text as lawyers, but as sons and daughters who deeply want to honor our Father and deeply want to imitate and look like our Father. Does that make sense? Okay, great. So, you shall not commit adultery. The first question that you should ask and that I should ask as I'm reading this is, what is adultery? If I shouldn't commit it, I should probably know what it is. Amen? Okay, so here's the thing about this. Most of us only think of adultery as cheating on our husband or our wife. And we kind of leave it there. But here's the thing. This Command is, this, this command is fascinating because it actually has um, a few different meanings, literally, and one meaning figuratively, and all of them are found in the Bible. It's the Hebrew word na'af, na'af, okay? And now, now, this word doesn't mean just a husband who cheats on his wife. This word very specifically, literally, means a husband or a wife who has sex outside of the marital covenant, right? And it also means somebody who is single, right? And has sex with someone who is in a married, married covenant, okay? So it's not just married people cheating on each other. It's also a single person who has sex with someone who's married, okay? Not only that, so often what we find in Scripture is that this idea of adultery is inextricably linked to all sexual immorality. Most of the time when you see the word adultery in the Bible, and in particular in the New Testament, it is like right next to the words sexual immorality. As a matter of fact, most scholars would believe, and I would hold to this, I think this is, this is right, that really adultery isn't just in the context of marriage, that really adultery, because it's always linked with sexual immorality, can really just be a, another term uh, for fornication. Now raise your hand if everybody knows what the word fornication means. It's kind of an old school word for sex before marriage. Okay, so here's the idea. Adultery, because it's always linked in the Bible with sexual immorality, can really be linked and swapped for the, con for the, for the concept of sexual immorality. Now sexual immorality is a much bigger term, and it's not just adultery, it includes lots of things right? Um, fornication, sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend before you guys get married, that's on that list. Homosexuality, that's on that list. Bestiality is on that list. Um, polygamy is on that list. There's lots of things that are on the list of sexual immorality. And adultery, though here it may seem like it's only talking about husband and wife, it seems like in the text that really it just means sexual immorality as a whole. So that's the literal meaning of na'ef. Well, Guess what? There's a figurative term that's used, and it's the exact same Hebrew word, and it's fascinating to me, and it means to apostatize, to apostatize. 
If you guys have never heard that term, um, here's the idea. Um, the Bible says that there are people, whether it's in the future or whether it's even in the past, there are people who claim to love God, they follow God, they seem um, to, to, to have uh, some sort of salvation experience. They get in on being one of God's people and then they bail. And it's the term apostasy. Well, that word in Hebrew is naaf. It's the same word. It's adultery. And so you see it used figuratively to speak of someone who was saying, I was for the Lord and now I am against the Lord. And you see this as a clear example for the nation of Israel. When the nation of Israel starts worshiping other gods, God says, you are an adulterer. Naaf. In other words, they were in covenant with God. They broke that covenant for another God. They're adulterers. Right? You'll hear the term, uh, an evil and adulterous generation. That's the figurative language for na'af. Do not commit adultery. Okay, so there's literal meanings. There's figurative meanings. But Deuteronomy 22, I think, does a really good job of explaining the letter of the law behind committing adultery. So here's kind of the roadmap. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Deuteronomy 22, and we're going to look at God spelling out this command and what it actually looks like. We're going to look at the technicality, the letter of the law, and we're going to glean a lot from it. We're also going to look at the very spirit of the law, right? Because again, you guys may not have violated the letter, but we have all probably violated the spirit. And we're going to look at what Jesus says. Most of you already know what Jesus says about committing adultery. And we're going to look at the intent behind the law. And then we're going to give some very practical, I think, hopefully practical advice on what we can do to guard ourselves from committing adultery one way or the other. So I gave you what adultery is. Let's look at what Deuteronomy 22 says as we uncover the technicality of the seventh command. Deuteronomy 22 I want you to notice three things about this passage. So I'm going to tell you ahead of time, and then we're going to read it. The first thing I want you to look at, I want you to notice that God doesn't just leave us to figure it out. Do not commit adultery, period, and then he moves on to something else, and then we're left to be like, well, what is adultery, and what exactly constitutes sex, and how does that play out? What do you, how does all this work out? He's really kind, and he actually gives us the details. He's like, hey, listen, I know you probably have a lot of questions because you're finite, and you don't really get this. This is all new to you, so let me explain, and he goes, this is exactly what it's going to look like in your day-to-day life, so I just want you to see right off the bat God's kindness. Here's the second thing I want you to see. I want you to see that God is the great equalizer of genders. There is this um, argument out there, and I've heard it before, and it's just not even remotely biblical, that God is like chauvinistic in nature, that he is pro-man and anti-woman. That makes no sense whatsoever. As a matter of fact, what you're going to see is that in a culture where men were held to almost no standard and had no accountability, and women were blamed for almost everything, God comes in with the law, and he actually equalizes the genders here. And he goes, hey, wait a second. I'm not just going to punish the woman who commits adultery. I'm going to punish the man who commits adultery. As a matter of fact, what we're going to see is God goes to great lengths in Deuteronomy 22 to show you that women are to be protected, cherished, and treasured. And so for anyone out there who's heard the same arguments that I've heard, that, oh, well, you know, when women committed adultery, God saw it as, as, as somehow worse than when men commit adultery, that women were just objects and, and, and men were not hold, held accountable, you're going to see in Deuteronomy 22, that's not the case at all. God has always, always, always treated his creation with equality. Eve, I will, you'll often hear me say, Eve was taken out of the side of man, not in front of and not behind. As a matter of fact, it was, I think it was Matthew Henry who said that Eve was taken out of the side of man to walk side by side with him under the arm of man to be protected by him and near the heart of man to be loved by him. If you've ever been to one of my wedding ceremonies, I use that one a lot because I think it's, I think it's just full of rich truth. So I want you to see That God doesn't allow men to take advantage of women, and he doesn't just punish women who commit adultery, but he will punish men as well. And then I want you to see how serious God takes this issue of adultery. 
God is all about preserving the sanctity and the value of human life. Every one of us were created in the image of God, and God wants us all to be treated with dignity, and he wants us to all be treated with the same respect across the board. And what we're going to see is that God goes to great lengths to express how serious he takes adultery because adultery ultimately is sin against the very image bearers that he created. He takes this seriously. Now, why am I saying that? Because he takes it so seriously that he gives the most severe consequences to it. What you're going to notice is that adultery brings death. And God's very clear that if you commit adultery, you die. That's Old Testament law, right? That's where we could talk all day long about New Testament and how things should work now. But the idea that I want you to get is that God loves people and he hates sin and he hates adultery. And because it devalues us as human beings and because he doesn't like when people break covenant, he gives the most severe consequences. God is all about protecting the family unit. And he'll use this language like when, that, when somebody commits adultery, you need to purge, their, purge the evil from among the tribe. And the idea is this, that sin is like an infection. It's like gangrene and it spreads. And once people have gotten a taste of it, because of our own sin nature and our own rebellious self, it continues to spread. And so God will say, yeah, we need to, we need to keep it from spreading. And so the person who commits adultery, we're going to remove from the camp. Okay? So I just want you to notice that. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 22 through 24. God says, if a man is found lying with a married woman then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a girl who is a virgin and she's engaged to a man and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death. The girl because she did not cry out in the city and the man because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Now, that may sound like really intense. Let me, just, let me just paint this image for you. The idea is if a girl is engaged and she goes to a city and she sleeps with another man, he's going, hey, both of them need to be dealt with. And the language here kind of makes it seem like the man kind of forces himself on the woman, but that's actually not what's happening. That's what's going to happen in the next verse. What's happening is, They are in a populated area. She has an ability to cry out for help, but she doesn't cry out for help, thus demonstrating that she was complicit in it. And so the idea is this. If a woman who's engaged, even though she's not married, commits adultery, she's going to be held accountable, and so will the man. Okay? Let's look at the next verse so you can see I'm not making that up. But But if in the field the man finds the girl who is engaged, then the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who dies, or only the man who lies with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the girl. There's no sin in the girl worthy of death. For just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so it is in this case. When he found her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. Okay? There's the technicality of the law. And in this command is something really interesting. There's almost a hidden command that if you blink, you'll miss it. And here's the idea. Men, if a woman is in trouble, we are commanded to help her and to save her. Because here's what he says. He goes, hey, if she cries out in the streets, if she's in a city and somebody comes and tries to abuse her and she cries out for help, Unlike every culture of the world, you don't champion it and be like, yeah, go get it, son. You go deal with him. He goes, then you bring him before me, and I will kill him. He goes, but you better help. And he goes, and in in the worst case scenario, and the, the woman is out in the field, and there's no one to help her, and she cries out for help, but nobody's around. And he goes, and then you find out about it? He goes, you deal with me, you bring him to me, and I will take care of him. He's gonna die. He goes, you don't treat her any different. It wasn't her fault, it was his fault. 
And this hidden command is that we as men are supposed to protect, honor, and serve women. That if we hear that someone is in a situation that is making them unsafe, and we hear that a woman in particular who is the, what the Bible calls the weaker vessel, and here's what that means, don't be freaked out, it just means that you are the more vulnerable one. Not because of some emotional thing or some mental thing, but because you are a woman. And you know what it feels like to be in the presence of a man who makes you feel kind of awkward. You feel vulnerable just from a physical stature standpoint. And he says, fellas, if you hear the woman crying out, if she's being abused, you go handle it. And here's what that means for you and I. As men, every woman should feel safe around us. When you walk into the room, there should be a sigh of relief. There shouldn't be anxiety. We protect, we honor, we serve. That's what it means to be a man. That's what Jesus does for us, and that's what we do for women. And here's what that means. You are not to creep out any woman. You're supposed to make her feel safe emotionally, You're supposed to make her feel safe mentally. You're supposed to make her feel safe physically. Let me tell you, here's what doesn't make them feel safe. When you get right up in their face and you start talking about intimate things. I'm not talking sexual things, but when you're like, hey, tell me what the Lord's doing in your heart. That doesn't make them feel safe. I'm just going to tell you right now. That doesn't make them feel safe. That makes them feel very awkward. Let me tell you what doesn't make them feel safe. When they go for the side hug and you go for the full hug. Doesn't make them feel safe. That seems like a joke. I get that, but I'm serious. Our job is to make women feel safe. One of my favorite um, examples of this is, uh, and I've said it before, I don't know, in one sermon, but um, do you guys remember the uh, shootings? Are y'all old enough to remember the shootings when the dark night came out in Aurora, Colorado? It was, it was horrible, and the guy comes in, he's got like full armor, and he starts like mowing down people at the Dark Knight premiere. And um, there's uh, a story, you guys can look it up, and these guys aren't even, they're not even Christians, they're just men, okay? They're on dates with these women. I think it was like three guys and, and three women, and the guy comes walking into their theater with armor and guns, and here's what they do. They throw the women down onto the floor, they get on top of the women, and they take the bullets, and the three men die, and the women live. That's what we do. As a man, we protect. We lay down our life. And we do everything we can to make them feel safe. So you know what probably else doesn't make them feel safe? Hey, why don't we go out for coffee together? That may not make them feel safe. It may be completely innocent. Absolutely, I totally get that. But you need to have some discernment and figure out, does that make you feel safe or does that not make you feel safe? Because my goal ultimately here is to make sure that you feel okay, that I don't creep you out, that you don't feel violated. And here's what, guys, here's what I just want you to know. You are unaware of their story. You have no idea what their history is like. And some of you guys, most of you guys probably don't know this. Some of you do. But some of you guys know what it's like to be abused. But statistically, far more women are abused than men. And you may not think you're doing anything weird. Totally. You may just be totally normal. But you're, you're in a space that immediately starts to trigger these ladies who have been hurt or abused. Okay? And in this day and age, I'm just going to tell you right now, there's more abuse than ever before. And it's only going to get worse because abuse only creates more abuse. And so in this day and age... We just need to be on guard to make sure that we're doing everything we can, not knowing other people's history, to make sure that women feel safe emotionally, physically, and mentally, and then spiritually, okay? Ladies, let me just tell you right off the bat, if somebody here makes you feel awkward or weird, you tell them because they may not know. Fellas, don't get upset. If boundaries continue to get crossed, you come talk to me, and I will kindly ask the man to leave and not come back. That's where we're going to go with this, okay? All right, fellas, my man. We don't take advantage. We don't manipulate. We don't act like a creeper. We don't abuse. We don't hurt. And we don't endanger women. And you see that even in Deuteronomy 22. And I think it's fascinating. He's like, hey, if she cries for help, go 
and help her. And you don't realize how countercultural that actually is. For that day and age, women were seen as objects, but not in the eyes of the Lord. So here's the thing. God hates adultery. So that was Deuteronomy 22. God hates adultery. Now, here's the question. Why does God hate adultery? Have you ever actually thought about it? Well, he hates adultery because he loves marriage. And you can't love one thing and not hate the opposite. God loves you. He hates sin. Okay? God loves marriage. He hates adultery. And here's why God loves marriage. God loves marriage because marriage is the perfect example that we have here on the earth for how Jesus loves us. There's a a paradigm um, out there that we talk about often called the bridal paradigm, and it's a way of looking at the Bible. It's the way that the Bible speaks, where where, uh, Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And marriage is all about representing and paralleling what our relationship is as the church and as the bride to the bridegroom. So he loves marriage. He loves marriage because it's covenant. And if we can't keep our covenant with somebody who we can see, how possibly are we going to keep our covenant with somebody who we can't see? He loves covenant and he loves marriage. And so here's what I want to do. I want to give you a vision for marriage. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Ephesians 5, I told you guys to earmark it. I read this at weddings often. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Oh, Lord, help me. Where am I at? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So then, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, now stop. If you just read what I read, it's really easy to look at that and go, well, this is clearly just about marriage. But the very next verse identifies for us, it's not actually about marriage. He's talking about Jesus and the church. He says, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you must also love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her her husband. In other words, our vision for marriage instructs our relationship with the Lord. Our vision and our understanding for marriage is going to directly affect how we relate to the Lord. So God loves marriage because he wants us to view him rightly and he wants us to view our place in this relationship rightly. And things happen when you start messing with marriage. Let me just tell you, there's, a, there's an assault on marriage happening in our culture right now and you guys are all aware of it. It's not just the LGBTQ community, it's open marriages. It's, it's the idea that we don't even need to be married any longer, that marriage is, 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 is a burden. Monogamy is overrated. And I'm just going to tell you right now The reason Christians make such a big deal about all of this assault on marriage, whether it's the LGBTQ agenda or whether it's the open marriage agenda, is because if you start messing with marriage, eventually you're going to start messing with the way the church relates to Jesus. And you see this even taking root now. You'll start to see churches that are embracing LGBTQ agenda. And they say, no, 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 it's not just that everyone's welcome in our church because everybody is welcome in church. Let me just tell you right now, everybody's welcome in church. But that that's supposed to be celebrated and that's championed by God. And here's what happens. When you start messing with one man, one woman, context for life, which is what God said marriage is supposed to be like, covenant marriage, when you start messing with that on a broad scale, not just an individual scale, on a broad scale, it's gonna creep into the church. And next thing you know, the church is going to forget its place. 
The church is going to forget that we are subject to Christ as wives are subject to their husbands. Now, that's a hard verse, but it's really important that we get that. We are not the bridegroom here. We're the bride. There's all kinds of great things about the bride. There's all kinds of great things about being the bride. And Jesus has great words to say about the bride because Jesus loves the bride. But at the end of the day, we are not the savior of the world. He is. We are not little gods. He's the only God. And you see weird theology start to creep in because people have started to screw around with marriage. We don't do that. Let me just tell you, marriage, one man, one woman, context for life. That's how God intended it, and that's how God designed it. Now, we understand that there are exceptions to that, and when abuse takes place, when sin creeps in, there's all kinds of exceptions, but that is not God's will. God's will for marriage is a man loves a woman like Christ loves the church, and a woman loves the husband like we love Jesus, and they stay exclusive together for life. So God hates adultery because it actually counteracts all of that, and nothing will destroy a marriage like adultery will. Nothing will destroy a marriage like sexual immorality will. It may not be, quote-unquote, technicality, someone slept with someone else outside of the marriage, but it very well could be pornography. It very well could be a lust issue. It very well could be some inappropriate texts being sent back and forth. God says, no, man, I don't play that game because I'm pro-marriage. And anything that would degrade or erode marriage, I'm anti that. And here's the thing. Sexual sin of every kind is making war predominantly against marriage. Now, you may not be married yet, but I promise you now, if anybody here struggles with any kind of sexual sin, I promise you, you will, it's going to have an effect on your marriage in the future. I promise Yes, it may be forgiven. Yes, it may be covered in the blood. Yes, you may be seen white as snow. Absolutely. But there are very real consequences to sexual sin. This, you, want, you want to hear an interesting statistic? I don't have the actual number, but I will just tell you, it is, it is a fact, and I've done, I've done the research. Google it. There are more 23-year-old men who cannot perform because they're so addicted to pornography that the real thing isn't as good as the fantasy anymore. And so what you see are young men, when they get married, they can't actually enjoy their wives. Now just play that out. We're all adults here. Just play that out. Imagine what that's like if you're the wife. And your husband doesn't find you attractive. Imagine, come wedding night, nothing happens. How do you think that hurts your marriage? It's real, dude. I'm telling you. Your sexual sin now, you may not be married yet, but one day you probably will be. And if you leave your sexual sin unchecked, it will have a destructive path, not just in that way, in many other ways in your marriage. So God hates it. Okay? So God hates adultery and he hates all sexual sin because it erodes marriage. There's, um, let me just tell you, there's a, Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There's a teaching out there in the church, and, and it's not meant to be said this way, but it's kind of, we take it this way. At least I did. I'm going to be honest with you. When I, before I started to like really dive into the Bible, I was really just listening to people's sermons. And so I was really just at a, I was at the preacher's whim, okay? And, and when they would say things like this, that all sin is equal at the foot of the cross, right? Or, or, or sin is sin, right? It's all bad. There's no worse sin. I, I would hear that, and I would just take it at face value. And I remember coming to this passage in 1 Corinthians 6 and realizing, oh, that may not be true. Now, let me tell you this. All sin is equally easily to forgive. Okay, for Jesus, it's just as easy for him to forgive adultery as it is to forgive you cheating on your taxes or, or lying on your test or whatever, right? Like, like Jesus, it's, it's the, the cross really is the great equalizer, but sometimes what we think is, oh, well, then sexual sin isn't as bad. It's not that big of a deal. It's all equal. And the Bible, what you're going to read in 1 Corinthians 6 right now is very clear that it's actually the worst kind of sin, that there are levels to sin, and he's going to break it down right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Time out. If anybody uses that 
verse to do whatever the heck you want to do, you are not saved. Okay? That is, okay, that, that may be a little strong. Do not use that verse to do whatever you want to do. What Paul is actually referencing, he's referencing, uh, um, uh, oh, what's the word? Uh, a saying of the day. It was a very famous Greek saying. All things are, prof- or Roman saying, all things are profitable, for, or all things are lawful for me. And he goes, all things may be lawful for me. He goes, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Yes, he goes, food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Do you understand that language? That you are like an extension of Christ, so much so that we call the church the body and we call Jesus the head. Okay? He goes, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to the prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. He says, but the the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So then flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. He goes, hey, every other sin that a man commits, it's outside the body. He goes, but when you have sexual sin, he goes, it's a different ballgame. He goes, now you're sinning against your own body. And he goes, and here's the thing about your own body. The Holy Spirit lives in your body. He says, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. He goes, do you not know that you have been made one with Christ? So now that you're one with Christ, should you go then be one with a prostitute? So here's the idea. Francis Chan explains it like this, and it's, it's brilliant, this whole passage. He goes, hey, listen. He goes, when you commit sexual sin, what you're doing is you're forcing the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you into a union that he wants nothing to do with. Because the Holy Spirit lives in you, and he lives in me. And whatever I bind myself to, I'm binding the Holy Spirit to. And so he goes, hey, listen, adultery, that's really bad because I only bless marriage covenant. And it's strong language. He goes, you've been bought with a price. And so often the thing that leads us into sexual sin or one of the things that, that, that uh, I don't want to say it leads us into sexual sin, but one of the ways it can is we forget our value, and we forget the person that we're committing sexual sin with, we forget their value. We forget the the price. And when you start to look at people that way, that the, that the, the girl or the guy on the screen, or the person on the other end of Tinder, or the boyfriend or girlfriend, that and you're not married, and you forget that they were bought with a price, it's really easy to sin against them, because they have no value. John, uh, in 1 John, would say this, that there, um, there are uh, sins worth, gosh, how did he say it? Oh, Lord, help me. I'm pulling, this, I'm pulling this out of thin air. Give me one second. I got to search this little file. He goes, there is a sin that leads to death, and there is a sin that doesn't lead to death. He describes two different kinds of sin. Right? He goes, hey, uh, sin like lying, that doesn't necessarily lead to death. Cheating on your taxes, that doesn't necessarily lead to death. He goes, but sexual immorality, that's a sin that leads to death. And so when I say that one sin is worse than the other, I don't mean one sin is, is, is worse than the other, as in it's harder to forgive. Sexual sin is more destructive and more costly than any other kind of sin. Nothing will wreck your life like sexual sin will. Nothing, including, but not limited to, adultery. Okay, so I gave you the technicality of the law. I gave you why does God hate adultery? It's because he loves marriage and he loves us. Let me give you the spirit of the law. 
Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 30. And ultimately, guys, this is where this, this is where the rubber meets the road for us. Jesus says this, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Yes, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And again, let's look how serious he takes this. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go to hell. He says, hey, Pharisees, you're looking at the letter of the law. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. He goes, you missed the whole point. He goes, yeah, you may technically not have committed adultery. He goes, but you've committed adultery in your heart. You violated the spirit of the law. He says lust and adultery are the same thing. Now, this is really interesting. I, I, I looked at the Greek because I was just, I was curious. Sometimes if you guys, by the way, I don't know Greek and Hebrew, but I can Google. So I'm just going to tell you that you guys can know Greek and Hebrew because you can Google. Okay, Blue Letter Bible. Go to, go to blueletterbible.com. It's the most helpful resource. It's completely free. And it will give you commentaries. It will give you the Greek breakdown. It will give you the pronunciation. It will give you all the instances that it's used in other areas. It's really helpful. Blue Letter Bible. Just, I don't want to pretend to be something I'm not. Okay? I am not a scholar. The word lust, it's um, epithumeo in Greek. Epithumeo. And it's really fascinating because when I've, looked, when I've thought about lust, I typically, if you guys may think the same thing, we typically think about something sexual. Anytime somebody comes up in a small group and they go, can you pray for me? I'm really struggling with lust. We all know that's code for you're struggling with pornography and probably something else, right? We all know it, right? But it's like the Christian code word, I'm struggling with lust. And it's sexual in the church. So when we say lust, if I get, I'm gonna give an altar call for everyone here who's struggling with lust. Everyone who comes up, we're all going to be like, that's guys pornography. Yeah, okay? But it's actually not a sexual word. Jesus says, hey, you've heard it said don't commit adultery, but I've said every time you look at somebody with lust, you've already committed adultery. And so we assume, well, adultery is sexual in nature, so therefore, lust must be sexual in nature, and it's not. Do you know what lust means? Epithumeo. It actually means to covet intensely desire or long for. To covet, to intensely desire, and to long for. In other words, lust is not sexual in nature, but possessive in nature. It's not sexual in nature. It is possessive. It happens when a man or a woman looks at another man or a woman or even an object and deep down inside of them, they long to possess it. That's epithumeo. It's, I want something that is not mine. It's coveting. I want something that God has not given me, and I don't only just want to look at it from afar. I want it. I want to own it. I want it to be mine. I want to have possession of it. And so when Jesus says, hey, when you look at a woman with lust, what he's actually saying is, and ladies, it's the same thing for you if you look at a man with lust. What he's actually saying is, he goes, you don't have a sexual problem. You have a possessive problem that needs to be dealt with. He goes, you think that just because you, you, that you see someone attractive and you want to see them naked, and, and you go, that's the problem. And so you spend all of your time trying to fight a sexual desire. Oh, by the way, God gave you sexual desires. He goes, no, no, no. It's not a sexual problem. He goes, you have a coveting problem. You're lusting. You're craving something that is not yours, and you are longing to take possession of something that is not yours. And here's the idea, guys. So many Christians, they spend so much time trying to quench the fire of their sexual desire. That rhymed. There's a rap in that. Quench the fire of my sexual desire. That's going to be on the intercession set. Can you see it? <laughs> you can see it on R46. Sorry, that's a funny, I, that's literally a chorus. I can just hear it, okay? So many people spend so, many, so much time, energy, and bandwidth 
just trying to get through the sexual desire, just trying to, to stop looking, and you never actually deal with the root issue. The root issue is you want something that God hasn't given you. The root issue is not sexual, it's possessive. And you wonder why the desire doesn't go away. You wonder why, how, no matter how much um, accountability software, how many times you confess, how many times you pray, you wonder why doesn't it go away. It's because you're not dealing with the root issue. The root issue is discontentment with God at the very core of your porn issue, at the very core of your compromise issue, at the very core of your sexual immorality, at the very deepest, darkest core. You long for something that you cannot have and you are discontent because you feel like you should have something that's not yours. And so when you're trying to fight this temptation, it's not enough to simply come at it and go, well, I'm just trying to, trying to bind my hands. I'm just going to try to not look because you're never actually dealing with the root cause, guys. To lust means to crave and to covet. And it dawned on me as I'm studying this, I'm going, wait a second. The 10th commandment says do not covet. And, and if he's saying the 7th commandment is do not commit adultery, but if you've committed lust, which is coveting, then you've already committed adultery, then he's basically saying in commandments 7 and 10, don't covet. Well, that doesn't make any sense until you read the 10th commandment. Remember the 10th commandment, do not covet? These ideas of coveting and adultery are so tied together that you actually see it in the 10th commandment. Let me read to you the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. They're so inextricably tied together that even in the 7th commandment, he goes, hey, you shall not commit adultery and then he double stitches it in the 10th commandment and he goes, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Adultery. And it dawns on me, oh my gosh. We take coveting so, like, we don't take it that seriously and we wonder why there's a massive sexual immorality epidemic happening right now. And coveting, guys, I just, I, I'm gonna just pivot. We're just gonna talk about coveting for just a moment. At its core, it just means this. I'm discontent with where I'm at and I'm discontent with what I have. And you can lust after an object you can intensely desire, covet, and long for an object, or you can intensely desire, covet, and long for a person, and it's the same issue. And so the question is, how do we keep from coveting? Because if that's the root issue, I want to get to that. How do we keep from coveting? Let me give you three strategies to help with coveting. Number one, cultivate a grateful heart. The Christian cliche, have an attitude of gratitude, but it really is serious. There's something that happens to Christians naturally where we gravitate towards being ungrateful. We naturally gravitate towards being dull, and we naturally gravitate towards forgetting everything that God has given us because we just get used to it. You start walking with the Lord for a few years, it's going to be really easy for you to forget what it was like to not be saved. And my call is if you want to, if you want to deal with that discontentment issue, you've got to remember all that God's given you. And so what I'm going to call you to is for it to have a grateful heart, to have eyes to see all of the ways that God has been gracious to you, all of the ways that he has blessed you, and all of the ways that he's provided for you. Because when you have a grateful heart and you're satiated here, you're like, yeah, I, I don't need anything else. All of a sudden now, the girl or the guy has no power over you because you're satisfied. You're just grateful. And here's the deal. This is a broken world. And every single one of us has been touched by its brokenness. Yeah, we live in the West, we live in the land of Laodicea, we live in the land of comfort and wealth and money, but let's be real, it's not easy. But I promise you, we all have a lot to be grateful for. And if we will learn every day, everything that comes our way, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to be grateful, to look at what could have happened instead, man, our hearts will come alive and coveting 
doesn't become as big of an issue. Well, here's the second thing that you need to do. We need to trust that he's given us everything we need. Coveting, at the end of the day, is that not just discontentment with God, it's distrust with God. It's saying, you haven't provided what I need, and therefore I'm going to go grab it. And guys, we've got to trust him. Everything we have has been given to him, and he's supplied every one of our needs. And let's be real, he's supplied a heck of a lot more than our needs. He has given us so many of the desires that we want, and he gives us everything that we can handle. I'm convinced of it. And if you don't have something right now, if you don't have a husband, you don't have a a wife, and you're going, Lord, I'm discontent and I'm angry, and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to get what I deserve. I'm going to go out there and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, go and compromise or I'm going to sleep around or I'm going to look at pornography. I'm going to do whatever, right? I'm just going to tell you, it's probably because you can't handle a husband or a wife right now. And so instead of being angry about it, you should actually trust God and be like, okay, Lord, you haven't sent it. You haven't sent him and you haven't sent her. So therefore, I must not be ready. And I trust you because I trust that you're for me, that you're not against me. I trust that you're not withholding something from me. Remember the very temptation in the garden? very temptation that started the entirety of the fall was that Satan got Eve to believe that God was withholding something from them. Do you remember what it was? He goes, hey, who, who told you that you shouldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And she said, oh, the Lord did. And he goes, did he really say that? And she goes, yeah, he said, from any tree of the knowledge of evil you, you shall not, or from any tree of the garden you shall eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for the day that you eat of it or touch it, you shall surely die. And he goes, oh, yeah. Now, God's actually, he, he just doesn't want you to eat it because he knows that in the day that you eat of it, you'll be like him. Because God's holding out on you. The very first sin that started all of this brokenness and all of this mess was he got Eve to distrust God. Trust that he's given us everything that we need. And then I would just say this. This is a, just a flat-out good strategy for every issue in your life, spending enjoyable time with God as often as you can, as long as you can. Man, I, I tell you what, it is, we don't have to be religious about it. You do not have to have like set aside what we call quiet time in the church. You don't have to have quiet time every day, but you need to have quiet time enough that you haven't forgotten God in your moment of, t- of temptation. If you're asking yourself, how often do I need to pray? How often do I need to get in God's presence? How often do I need to get in the word? You need to get in it as often as it takes for you in a moment of temptation to not forget that God is real, that he's watching, and that he loves you. And something happens when you start to experience God in an enjoyable way on a regular basis. When you start to love God more than you love your sin, sin becomes very easy to master. Does that make sense? So let me do this. Let me give you four brief, these are brief, I promise. We've got like just a minute left. Four strategies to help you with your sexual sin. Um, the first thing I would say to do is you need to catch a vision for a godly marriage. So many of you guys, ladies, your first go-to in your struggle against sin is accountability software. I'm, I'm great with accountability software. I think everybody should have something on their phone to help them in a moment of weakness. Absolutely. Something on their computer in a moment of weakness. But let me just tell you, the, you want to you catch a vision for what a godly marriage looks like that's not been tainted by sexual sin. That means that you guys need to branch out probably and get to know people who are married. Maybe that's your mom and dad. Glory to God. That would be awesome if it is. It may not be your mom and dad. Right? But you need to look and see their marriage, you need to see how they interact, and it needs to inspire you and give you a vision, something tangible that you can sink your teeth into and go, that's what I'm going after. And so in a moment of weakness, you remember the godly marriage. (coughs) So you catch a vision for godly marriage. Here's your second strategy against sexual sin. You catch a vision for the destruction that sexual sin brings. Sometimes it's not enough just to see the good. You actually have to see the bad. And if we're honest, the reason people struggle so much is because they do it so often without getting caught. They do it so often without feeling the burn, and so you can forget that it stings, and we can lose sight of the consequences. Let me ask you this. I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question. We're going to talk specifically pornography, but it could be compromise in general. 
How long have you been looking at pornography? When was the first time that you were exposed to it? Okay, you got, you got that number in your head? The average guy gets married at 28, the average girl at 30. So imagine, do the math on that. Let's say you get married at 28. Let's just call it 28. How long have you been addicted to pornography before you got married? Do you think you're just going to be able to stop? Can you imagine the consequences that that brings in your marriage? What happens when you uh, have kids and you haven't quite been able to master that thing? And all of a sudden, your little girl grows up and she starts looking at the very thing that you've been looking at, or your son grows up to look like the very thing that you've been looking at for 30 years. You could see the damage and the destruction that unchecked sexual sin can bring. And it's not just enough to have a vision of a, what a godly marriage could look like, although that's, that should be in the forefront of your mind. We should also remember the consequences and have a vision for the destruction that it can bring. Well, how about number three? Um, here's your third strategy against sexual sin. Confess to the ones that you don't want to confess to. So often we just confess to our friend who's in the exact same boat. Ah, I really messed up, man. I struggled with my girlfriend and my boyfriend. Oh, dude, me too. I wasn't going to tell you, but I'm so glad. Now I feel better and you feel better. We both suck. Great. And they're, honestly, guys, that is great. And I, I think, honestly, I, if, that's, if that's what you do, I think, that's, I think it's good. I think it's right to at least confess and acknowledge, man, I, I'm really struggling. But sometimes I think because everybody struggles to some degree, that it's like there's almost no accountability and what I have found in my own life is that I've got people that I'm accountable to that I do not want to be accountable to. Because I do not want to have to look them in the eye and be like, dude, I really jacked up. There's a fear of the Lord on that. Not just a fear of the Lord, but a healthy fear of man. And I would just tell you that you need to find someone to confess to. You need to find someone who keeps you accountable, but you actually don't want them to keep you accountable. That's the kind of person you're looking for. That does not need to be me. Because everybody goes to, I need to tell the preacher, I need to tell my pastor because that's going to be the most embarrassing. Don't do that. Don't tell me. I don't care. It's between, I do care, but I'm not, I can't be that for all y'all, okay? Just, I do care. I care deeply. Just, you know, you know what I mean. All right. And then number four, um, lock out your devices. If you're like really struggling in an area, I would say lock out your devices, um, you may not know this, but you know there's parental controls on your phone and on your computer? Yeah. And you can literally lock down everything that could possibly cause you to stumble. Tinder app, you can delete the, the little app store, so you can't even, can even install the Tinder app. Snapchat, you can delete Snapchat, delete your um, app install, so you can't bring it back in a weak moment. You can lock down your device in such a way as you are struggling and as you are finding yourself in more and more weak moments, you can actually do that. And here's what you do. You go to a friend and you say, hey, I, I want you to lock down my phone. I want you to lock down my computer. I want you to lock down all these areas that are giving me trouble right now. They put a little passcode. You don't know the passcode. Voila. It's really helpful. And I think if you're struggling... I think that's a really like honorable and noble thing to do. That is akin to what Jesus says when he says, hey, chop off your hand or pluck out your eye. You're actually doing something in the natural to keep you from having a weak moment, and that's okay. Now, does it deal with the heart issue? No, not necessarily. You're gonna have to deal with the heart issue, but it does help. And so, catch a vision for godly marriage, catch a vision for the destruction that sexual sin can bring, Confess to ones you don't want to confess to and lock out your devices. That would be my word of encouragement to you. Okay, now everyone stand. Um, worship people, you can come up. <coughs> I want to end simply by telling you this, that God loves you. That I, don't, I don't really care what your sexual sin is, God loves you. God desires you to be set free. God desires the very best for you and he desires life and life abundantly for you. And he's not up there waving his finger at you, looking at all the ways that you've done wrong. 
God is not up there keeping a record of any of your wrongs. Here's the deal. I prayed this earlier in our briefing, but there's hell to pay for all of our sins. There is. There should be a weightiness to that. There is hell to pay for our sins, but glory to God, hell's been paid already. Jesus took all of your sin, past, present, and future. The penalty is gone. No longer is the Lord holding all of your issues in front of you. That's the accuser, in, or that's the accuser of the brethren. But God loves you. And he desires that you would yield what Hebrews 12 calls the peaceable fruit of righteousness. He desires you to walk in life and in purity simply because he wants the very best for you. And if you want that and God wants that, dude, there's no way that's going to go wrong. And so what I don't want you to feel is go, oh man, well, I'm all kinds of messed up. I'm all kinds of broken sexually and I've messed up so much. And you walk out of this thing feeling shame. There is no shame in this room. God's not shaming you. I'm not shaming you. We're not shaming you. God loves you. He has paid the price for every single one of us. And he doesn't just pay the price. He makes us clean. And though you may feel filthy and broken and like you're damaged goods, there are no damaged goods in the kingdom of God. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at gatekeepersatl. We'll see you in the next episode.